Welcome to the Monocle Podcast. We are an independent management consulting firm, and in this podcast, we discuss our latest insights and opinions to help you achieve exceptional performance in banking and insurance together. I'm Guy Wilding, Monocle's research manager based in Johannesburg, and on today's episode, we're joined by Vian Viert, one of our directors, to chat to him about the transition away from the world's most important number, the LIBOR benchmark rate, and what that means for the financial industry, both here in South Africa and abroad. Vian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Guy. Uh, very excited to talk about this very topical subject at the moment and something that I think is quite exciting that we are involved in as a monocle. So off the bat, can you explain to us what LIBOR is um, and what its purpose has been in the market for so long? Sure. So let's start with the basics. LIBOR stands for the London Interbank Offered Rate. This rate is an interest rate average calculated from estimates submitted by leading banks in London. So it is widely used as the benchmark for reference index rates for determining short-term interest rates globally. It's used to set base reference rates for a wide variety of financial products, including mortgages, consumer loans, student loans, as well as rates for commercial lending, uh, floating rate notes, interest rate swaps, and a host of other financial products. One estimate, latest estimate that I've seen is that more than $400 trillion in securities products are linked to LIBOR. In addition, LIBOR is also used as a key proxy for measuring the stress in global credit markets. So escalating LIBOR rates suggest banks are requiring higher rates in order to compensate for higher received risk. So LIBOR, basically the most widely used benchmark rate in the world. And if you think about it globally, most rates derive from LIBOR. Over the years, LIBOR has evolved and has expanded to include 10 currencies with 15 different maturities for each currency, ranging from overnight rates to 12 months as the maximum tenor. So LIBOR, you might ask, how is LIBOR determined? And I'm going to take you through two kind of distinct periods around LIBOR. So LIBOR is determined on a daily basis through a process in which panels of contributor banks submit quotes for 10 different currencies and 15 different maturities to Thomson Reuters just after what they call the fixed time of 11 a.m. So Thomson Reuters then takes all the submitted quotes for the various currencies maturities and calculates the LIBOR rate by ranking quotes, discarding the highest and lowest 25% of submissions and using the average of the remaining quotes in a process known as a trimmed mean. So depending on the currency, the number of banks submitting quotes can range from 6 to 18 banks. And for US dollar or euro dollar submissions, there are currently 18 contributor panel banks. Originally, contributor banks submitted quotes to the BBA based on the survey question, which stated, at what rate do you think interbank deposits will be offered by one prime bank to another prime bank for a reasonable market size today at 11 a.m.? So this is very much old world. So in 1998, as the definition of a prime bank became more difficult to, to delineate, the question the BBA then asked banks was changed to, at what rate could you borrow funds? Were you to do so by asking for and then accepting interbank offers in a reasonable market size just prior to 11 a.m.? So post-2014, after an in-depth review of LIBOR was done, the ICE Benchmark Administration, IBA, um, has constituted a designated panel of global banks for each currency in a tenor pair. So only those banks that have a significant role in the London market are considered eligible for membership on the ICE LIBOR panel, and the selection process is held annually. Slight change also in the way LIBOR is calculated as of April 2018. So in April of 2018, the IBA submitted a new proposal 
to strengthen the LIBOR calculation methodology. So it suggested using a standardized transaction-based, very importantly, data-driven layered method called the waterfall methodology for determining LIBOR. Vian, you mentioned that LIBOR has around $400 trillion worth of loans and derivatives based off it. And, you know, it's got 30, 40 years of history behind it. But we've moved now to a transition away from LIBOR. What went wrong that created such a monumental shift and that was needed for this, this transition? So I think this is where we step away from the math a little bit and and actually get into the scandal of LIBOR and the interesting meaty parts. So the first public inklings of a potential scandal related to alleged LIBOR manipulation was around April of 2008 when the Wall Street Journal published an article entitled LIBOR Fog, Bankers Cast Out on Key Rate Amid Crisis. So in the article, the Wall Street Journal speculated that amid the depth of the credit crisis in late 2007, in the early part of 2008, banks were submitting artificially low rate quotes to the BBA in order to mask the perception of higher funding costs and a weakened financial position. So another Wall Street Journal article in May of 2008 suggested that banks in the first four months of 2008 reported lower rates for liable calculations than what other market measures indicate that they should have. Um, one of my favorite all-time books that I've read around finance is a book called The Spider Network. Um, It was written by David Enrich, and it is the story behind Tom Hayes, who was a trader at UBS and has been held up as the poster boy for LIBOR rigging and basically the scandal that, that surrounded LIBOR. So the book's title actually says it's the wild story of a math genius, a gang of backstabbing bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history. So Tom Hayes traded derivatives at UBS and later at Citigroup in London, and his favorite activity was was basis trading, so speculating on the movements in LIBOR expressed in multiple currencies and various durations, trades that he might hedge with trades in other derivatives. So the daily reporting of LIBOR rates by bankers around the world determined his success or failure in generating P&L profits for his bank and bonuses for himself. So to give you an example, by September in 2008, a one basis point, which is one hundredth of a 1% move in LIBOR, had about a $750,000 impact on his bottom line. So through a wide network of broker contracts, including one of the world's largest interdealer brokers, ICAP, he succeeded in having LIBOR reported lower or higher, depending on the positions that he had in the market, different to its true level in order to drive profits and personal bonuses higher. So this really was the scandal that broke the back of LIBOR and where we find ourselves now in a new world in 2021 where we are going to move away from the old LIBOR to what is called the new RFRs or risk-free rates. Yeah, so you mentioned these alternative rates, these risk-free rates, and we've got acronyms like SOFA and SONIA. Can you maybe unpack the difference between LIBOR and an RFR? You know, is it as simple as just replacing one rate with the other? If only it was. Um, so risk-free rates have been developed on a currency-by-currency basis. So SONIA and SOFA that you refer to. And these new risk-free rates are fundamentally different from the old IBORs or current IBORs. So this is because IBORs representing an average of the rates at which panel banks believe they could borrow money in the interbank market reflect the credit and liquidity risk involved in lending in that interbank market. Whereas in contrast, RFRs, and I think the 
biggest, biggest difference is it doesn't have a term element. So where you would typically have a three-month USD LIBOR rate, you won't have that with the new RFRs being Sonia, Sofer, Esther. Very importantly, and the biggest impact is that these rates are backward-looking. So they're calculated by reference to historical transactional data. Also very important is the new RFRs do not price credit risk to the extent that IBORs did. So being based on overnight borrowing rates, often on a secured basis. And it doesn't include a premium on long-dated lending. So RFRs do not compensate lenders for making funds available long-term. So RFRs are generally considered to have the following kind of requisites. They're based on sufficient and reliable market data. They typically have robustness to changes in market structure. They're subject to appropriate controls and governance, and they reflect actual market funding rates, which is a big move away from what we currently see in LIBOR. So I'm going to dive into some more of the detail and specifically the the subjects or the topics within the RFRs, which really is quite challenging the first time you actually try to understand what these rates are. So the significance of the lookbacks. So I'm going to give you an example. So LIBOR for an interest period is fixed at the beginning of that interest period. So all the parties know at that point how much interest the borrower will have to pay at the end of the interest period. By contrast, the total interest accruing over a period based on a compounded risk-free rate cannot be determined until the end of that period. So a look-back mechanism provides the interest payable over an interest period is not determined by the RFR over the interest period itself, but over an observation period. So this observation period is the same number of business days at the interest period, but starts and ends a specified number of business days before the relevant interest period. So this ensures the parties know the interest that will be payable at the end of that interest period, only a few days in advance of the payment date. This is a far cry. This is something quite different to what LIBOR is, where if I have a three-month LIBOR resetting loan, I will know today what I will need to pay in three months' time. So then there's also the element of compounding on the RFR. So broadly, this means that the RFR itself is compounded on each business day over the relevant observation period using the daily published rates during that period. It doesn't involve any capitalization or compounding of accrued interest. Just around the the timelines as well. So two specific USD LIBOR tenors will be discontinued from the end of this year. So your one-week and two-month LIBOR tenors will cease to exist on the 31st of December of this year. So any kind of exposures that you have to those rate indexes currently, you will have to transition to the new RFRs. For the remainder of the tenors in USD currency, the deadline has been pushed out to June 2023 to get all of those current loans or products transitioned to the new RFRs. There is, however, in the euro and GBP currencies, a deadline of 31 December this year across all of the various tenors. So if you have any Euro GBP exposures, um, you will have to transition that before the end of the year. It's also not advisable to step into new transactions using the old LIBOR rates. So where clients are able to, it is very much encouraged that they take up the new RFRs when they enter into new agreements. So you've started talking about the, the operational side and especially the example around Excel being used for these deals. And you've seen that firsthand because you're currently leading a significant transition project at one of Africa's largest corporate investment banks. What have been some of the other challenges that you've experienced? 
We're part of a, a transformation program within a banking cluster at one of our big clients. I think some of the challenges that we've seen is purely based around the complexity of these new reference rates. This touches everything really in your system landscape. So some of the challenges that we are experiencing is things like system upgrades and systems that need to be able to calculate interest using these new methodologies. So from a technical system implementation perspective, this touches all of your source systems really that does any kind of interest calculation. So that is one of the main challenges is to actually get systems upgraded and have enhancements done to these systems in order to actually be able to calculate these new interest rates plus the calculations of, of the various cash flows. Lots of different pieces that we are also exposed to are things like conduct risk. The whole idea is that neither the client nor the bank or the borrower should be in a better or worse of position post a transition from the current LIBOR rates to the alternative reference rates. So conduct risk is something that is paid very close attention to. From an operational perspective, sifting through legal documents to understand if there is any kind of fallback language included in loan agreements. So fallback language basically means that you will price a loan referencing a certain rate, but if something were to happen to that rate, so if that rate is discontinued in the market, is there a fallback rate that can actually be reverted to to calculate interest? I think some of the other things that we're seeing is specifically around the corporate and, and investment banking is typically some of these larger deals or loans. Banks will be part of, of a syndicate. So you'll be a syndicate member and you are really at the mercy of what the facility agent and the rest of the syndicate members will do with their specific loans and deals in, in a larger deal. So where a bank is a agent in a syndicated deal, it's a little bit easier to handle because you will basically set what needs to happen. If you're part of a bigger group of syndicated lenders, you're really reliant on their input into the whole process as well. So something that, that I think is also very interesting and, and quite hard is the communication to clients of these new loans and the new pricing of these loans and the new interest rates. So if you do not have very sophisticated clients, actually getting clients to understand that they will now only find out the amount of interest that they need to pay, as an example, five days before the interest payment is due, and the actual marginal spread that you have priced the deal at on day one might change due to a credit adjustment spread to basically get the Sony or SOFA rate back to what the LIBOR equivalent LIBOR rate is, is quite challenging. And just getting the communication with clients early is quite a big task. And it involves a detailed understanding of who all of your clients are and then also your exposures. So these are some of the challenges from, from a pure business perspective. I think the heavy lifting in building Excel models using daily compounded rates is obviously huge. It does bring some operational risk into the process where there's a lot bigger chance for errors to be made in the, in the computation of cash flow amounts and payment amounts. So, so various challenges that we are seeing. We've spoken a lot about LIBOR and the, the various uh, currencies that it's quoted in. And, and now with the new alternative rates, 
you know, one for each region, basically, with Sonia and SOFA being the UK and the, uh, the American rates. But we also have a rate here in South Africa, Jaibar. What is the Saab's position and plan on transitioning away being for this benchmark? So the expectation is we haven't got the formal communication from the Saab to explain exactly how Jaibar is going to change. But I think the market knows and anticipates that Jaibar will change to a similar format to what Sonia, Sofer, and the rest of the risk-free rates in the world are. We expect communication from the SAR pretty soon, actually, on what that is going to be. I think it's also been quite a tumultuous last year or two, specifically around the risk-free rates, and the market having to settle on the various methods of calculation, the look-back versus the lockout periods, versus the lags. It's taken quite a while to actually get to a point where the broader community of banks, as well as the regulators, have landed on what exactly those methods are going to be. So our expectation is that the Saab will proceed with formal communication on what will happen to Jaibar once we have settled firmly on what is happening to the rest of the RFR, so Sonia, Sofer, Esther, etc., with Monocle involved in the banks, helping them to transition, how are we assisting the banks practically? So this is really, really interesting from a Monocle perspective. We're involved really end-to-end with our clients. So if you think about it, initially you need to understand what your current landscape looks like. So what are your exposures in the various currencies to the various tenors that are impacted by the transition from the current IBORs to the RFRs. So that involves a lot of data analysis. So this is digging into source systems, understanding what those instruments are, when those instruments actually reset, understanding that this is your full complete landscape from an asset and liability perspective that are impacted by the transition. So this is where Monocle assists, where we actually build technical solutions to to create these exposure analysis data sets so we can present to executives and give them a sense of what their books look like when they will have to transition deals. So so typically you transition a deal on a loans reset date. It's interest rate reset date. So understanding all of those flows. So, So a lot of data analysis and actually building the reporting for senior executives to to understand what their landscape actually looks like. So that's the one point. Secondly, we're involved from a quantitative side. So building the actual cash flow models and interest calculation models from first principles as per the formal communications we get from the regulators, which really forms the basis and the reference point to system enhancements. So this gives us something to compare to. This is our first principles, build a model from scratch that we will then compare the results of the changes that we are making to systems and reconcile back to. One additional element is to assist our clients to create a single view of a client in order for transactors, deal makers, the legal fraternity to go and talk to a client once about all of his exposures, all of his products, instruments that could reference current IBOR that will be transitioned to the new reference rate. Yeah, it definitely seems like things are starting to heat up, especially uh, with only a few months to go. So yeah, good luck with your transition engagements and uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast, Vian. Thank you, much appreciated. I hope I I energized this and I, I gave some interesting background as to why we are embarking on this journey. 
For our listeners who would like to learn more about what we do at Monocle and how we support our clients with their benchmark rate transition activities, keep an eye out for our LIBOR Transition Insights paper next month. Otherwise, you can visit our website to understand our core capabilities and view our full range of insights and previous Monocle podcasts. Similarly, if you'd like to contact us, you can find all our details on the website for both our European and South African practices. Thanks again, Bian, and to our listeners, thank you for listening. Visit monocle.co.za or co.uk to subscribe for updates. From Johannesburg to London, Cape Town to Amsterdam, Monocle, we design change.